The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Those of you who maybe read this, I apologize to read something you've already read or heard. But you know, um, 99% of Buddhist teachings is repetitive. <laughs> After lunch one day, the abbess and a visiting philosophy professor went for a walk along the river that passed by the monastery. Being a hot day, they eventually sat down to cool off under the shade of a large tree. The professor asked, I am interested in learning Buddhist philosophy. Could you tell me some of the fundamental doctrines of your religion? Well, said the abbess, I don't think I can help you much. You see, we don't rely on any philosophy at the monastery. But, continued the professor, everyone, consciously or unconsciously, has a philosophy with which to make sense of their life and their purpose. It is different in the monastery, replied the abbess. At the monastery, we, we rely on awareness, not doctrines. But, insisted the professor, you must have a philosophy which explains the importance of being aware. After pausing to consider how best to respond, the abbess said, as we walked along, we were both aware of how hot, sweaty, and tired we had become from our walk. We did not need a philosophy to tell us the benefits of sitting down here in the shade. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't need a philosophy to pull the hand away. If the baby is crying from hunger, the need to feed the child is obvious to the parent. Buddhist practice does not depend on having a set of doctrines or beliefs. Rather, it depends on being aware of what brings release from suffering. Rather than being taught Buddhist philosophy, at the monastery, the monks and nuns are trained to develop an acutely refined awareness. With such sensitivity, ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade on a hot day. <clears throat> so, the topic is renunciation. And one of the reasons for renunciation is to overcome the suffering that comes with clinging. And one of the purposes of mindfulness practice is to show us that suffering, to highlight it so we're really aware of it. If we're not aware of how something is causing us suffering, then why would we want to let go of it? If someone say, oh, it's really good to let go, you know, why should you believe them? But if you can see for yourself that how much you're clenched and holding tight, uh, if you can see clearly that this is not beneficial, you can feel it, then it becomes much more obvious. It's not a matter of philosophy, it's not a matter of doctrine, it's not a matter of... It's just, it's just really ordinary. And I like to think of uh, Buddhist practice as having that kind of ordinariness if our awareness is well-developed, because it's obvious. So one of the themes to look at in practice and also in in uh, this topic of renunciation, is what is the suffering that comes with clinging? And there's a variety of different kinds of suffering that come into play, different ways in which it hurts and causes uh, strain or stress. Uh, there's physical suffering that comes. 
Um, if uh, often when stronger the clinging to something is, the more likely it is that somehow we're doing that physically as well. Uh, our, we clench our stomach, our teeth, our, our chest, our hands. There's a tremendous amount of physiological way in which stress and strain that clinging, resistance, tightening down, craving can have on us. Uh, I think there's not a, a small number of people in our society who get sick in sometimes very deep ways because the, uh, uh, the strain of constantly living under some kind of clinging, some kind of tightening, some kind of resistance, some kind of drivenness, um, uh, that strain somehow uh, reaches the weak link in their system. And whatever the physiological weak link is starts to give out under that strain. So sometimes there's tremendous physical uh, uh, suffering that comes with clinging. Uh, there is emotional uh, suffering that comes. And it comes from um, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want. It comes from the expectations we have that are not fulfilled. It comes from the disappointments we have. It comes from uh, uh, you know, the whole gamut of emotions that come into play because, uh, because of that clinging. We can sometimes have kind of very strain, stressful and sometimes um, in the long term very painful forms of joy if we get what we want. Um, you know, some things we want, you know, you, you know, if, you know so maybe some of you really would like to win the California lottery. And if you won, you'd feel a certain kind of joy. But the statistics apparently is that most people who win that lottery are uh, uh, more unhappy at the end of a year than they were before they won the lottery. And so there's something about the winning that, the joy of that, which may be not so wholesome, not so helpful. Um, and so to be able to look at how that sets us, sets us up for disappointment, for all kinds of other things that have follow. Uh, there's certainly the anger that can come when we don't get what we don't want. Um, there's resentments that build up. There is, um, uh, uh, there's also exhaustion that can build up. I remember when I was younger, I liked to go to bookstores, and I noticed that whenever I left bookstores, I was exhausted. And what I discovered was that, because I didn't have any money when I was young, or very little, I couldn't buy any books. And, um, uh, but I, that didn't stop me from wanting the books. And I would go down the bookshelves, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. <laughs> and it was that kind of reaching forward and the straining of my eyes that had to do with wanting, wanting, wanting. That's what was exhausting. Just looking at the titles was, could be relaxing. And um, there is strain. Uh, craving can have a strain on our thinking uh, because our thinking sometimes becomes skewed, uh, not very uh, realistic or reasonable. Um, when we're under the strain of clinging and grasping, we tend to see and understand the world through particular filters. When we're clinging to certain things, craving to some things, and we're obsessed about certain things, we see the world through rose-colored glasses, or we see the world through dark glasses, or you know, any kind of things. Um, and uh, and so, you know, our ability to to be discerning, to be wise, is compromised because we don't see clearly. We don't see ourselves. We don't see the world around us. Um, <clears throat> And then there's a way that our clinging affects the world around us, other people. It's one thing that, it has, that there's suffering. We suffer because we cling. Um, we also suffer, we cause suffering to other people easily. Um, 
people is, you know, it is, it's, it's uh, you know, you don't have to go very far to realize that human beings, there's lots and lots of situations where human beings don't treat, it, treat each other well, say it lightly. And, uh, and you don't need a lot of analysis to realize that generally people are clinging to something, latched onto something, craving something in order to cause harm to other people. And, uh, you know, there's devastation going on in the world because people are living out their clinging in one way or the other. And then there's uh, also the cost that our clinging has on our, our own social relationships. Uh, uh, sometimes we cause harm to our immediate people we care for, care for, but also the people we care for with our community sometimes relate, relate to us uh, cautiously or with avoidance or all kinds of ways because they're reacting to the fact that we're obsessed, that we're stuck in some mode of being. Our relationships tend to be a lot smoother, easier, more free. Uh, people tend to approach us in an easier way if they feel that we're relaxed, that we're open, that we don't have an agenda, that we're not stuck in some kind of mode or, or insisting that our way or the highway or something. And so there's costs on us personally, there's costs on our immediate relationships, and there's a cost on the wider world that comes from uh, clinging. This is not to, uh, to depress you all, but the opposite. The emphasis here is if you can become aware of the cost, if your mindfulness can take that in, then it can be as easy as taking your hand off a hot stove. It can be easy as sitting down in the shade of a tree on a hot day. It can, you don't need a philosophy. You don't need a religion. You don't need Buddhism even. It just becomes obvious that you know, uh, this is what needs to happen. The, the more acute the attention is, the easier it tends to be to let go. Uh, and uh, So even when it, I, I realize that there are times when it's very, very hard to let go, and so that's one of the reasons why we bring awareness, attention to that difficulty, to the way we're holding. The tendency, generally, if the awareness becomes strong and clear and relaxed enough about something, it'll let go of itself. We don't have to be the one who lets go. So to become aware of the cost and uh, the impact it has on us is part of the path to both freedom and to wisdom in Buddhism. Um, so you might consider what, certainly what clinging, cravings, obsessions you have. Consider the ways in which uh, you, some of your behavior is driven where you seem to kind of get on kind of a driven mode where you don't, it's not easy for you to stop what you're doing. And then um, go along with it a little bit. You know, as long as you don't cause harm, but go along. It's just, you know, don't, don't be quick to stop doing it so that you can study it, so you can feel your way into it, so you can sense and discover what's really the cost, what's really the impact it has on you. Uh, if you sometimes, if you inhibit or stop too quickly, uh, because you have a policy, I'm not supposed to be that way, you might not uh, be able to see very deeply what's really going on for you. And, and, uh, and really this idea of seeing is so important in our tradition, seeing deeply. So I'd encourage you to take time to do that and then doing that, uh, become a little bit more, become aware of some of the things that would be useful for you to let go of. What would be useful for you not only to let go of, but what would be useful for you to renounce, to really kind of let go of in some deep way? 
So, that's my introduction to the next exercise. What I'd like you to do is to uh, pair up with one other person. And hopefully we're a even number. If not, if there's one person who doesn't fit, uh, why don't you stand up in the middle of the room here and if there's someone else standing, you'll find each, find each other. And if, you're, um, if there's no one, we'll figure out some way to, to make, make it work. So, um, so find someone and then decide who's going to be which part. There's two parts. And you'll, after, after a period of time, you'll reverse roles. And it's going to be the repeating question exercise. And so one person asks the question and the other person responds. The person asks the question, after, so the, 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 the questioner, once the person's responded, the important role of the questioner is to say thank you. And when you, then you pause, and then you ask the question again. The same question again. The, the answer says something. When it's finished, thank you. And ask the question again. The role of the person's responding is to make this an explore, exploration on your own part. You're exploring something for your own benefit. You're not doing this for the, for the sake of the person asking the question. In normal, normal conversation, if someone asks a, asks a question, you're telling them something that they want to know. Um, th- this this, this uh, exercise is not so important to tell the other person for their sake. You're exploring something for your own sake, and the person who's asking the question is helping you kind of go deeper with the question and explore new avenues, new things that come up. So the question is what would it be useful for you to let go of? What would be useful for you to let go of? And uh, maybe some of the more obvious answers will come first. And then you might be surprised because you keep keep answering that new things bubble up. Some of them might be, you know, there's there's an infinite number of things that are probably useful to let go of. So it might be, um, you know, all kinds of things come up with and, and maybe first you're only thinking about things having to do with your, your life at home. That's really big for you. Or your life at work, that's really big for you. And after you've done it for a while, you realize it'd be useful to let go of your self-consciousness about what the other person thinks about your answers. <laughs> you know, bring it r- right here. You know, bring it right to what's happening right now. Or maybe you're only talking about what's going on now and after a while you realize, you know, I think I might be useful to let go of, you know, um, reading the paper in the morning and then I'm always rushed to get to work. No, that was new. I hadn't thought about that. So kind of, and, and the more you have a chance to answer the question anew, the more you might be stretched into new areas, which means that try not to have a long answer. I mean, give an answer that needs, you need to give. But um, if you have a, a long story you want to tell in order to explain you, it's not for the purpose of the person. You're not, you're not trying to explain something to the person listening. You already know the story. It's for your sake. So you can get to the point of the story quickly. Um, so it's really for your own sake. And, and some people find that in doing this exercise, it's really helped them make it per, you know, a personal exploration. They find it helpful to even close their eyes or to look down. Or, you know, it's not a normal social conversation with someone. And just kind of stay in yourself and just take, receive the question and explore it and see what comes up. And, and uh, ideal, hopefully you'd be surprised by what comes. Make sense? So, um, 
we will do this. Uh, we'll do about um, seven or eight minutes for each person. And um, so uh, I'll ring a bell when it's time to switch. So if you could please uh, find a partner and the people who can't find one, come to the middle here and we'll... Okay, okay. Uh, so we'd like you to we'd like to hear from you. Um, what surprised you in uh, in this few minutes of talking about this? Um, and um, so, if if um, you know, we're gonna we'll use the mics and pass around. If you could tell us what you learned, uh, just the new things um, that that came up for you. Yeah, not what you learned about the other person. <laughs> 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 but uh, were, were you, were you any, is there any, any one thing that surprised you that you came up I should let go of this yes well the, that the bottom line for me is that I need to give up this sense of being se- feeling separate and, and seeing my you know which keeps me obsessed with my own needs and my own goals instead of feeling the connection, recognize, I mean, actually experiencing the connectedness with others. Thank you. Um, well, uh, first of all, the similarity between both of our reflections. But I, I wanted to say that... Um, what came, what I kind of saw through this process, the whole process, and Victor and I talked a little bit about it, was that this is such a great exercise, this reflection and having the person sort of keep, you know, reflecting back the question, reflecting back the question, because it keeps us so concentrated and focused, and we can get to different layers and different layers. And I realized, I says, you know, I have a sitting practice, I do meta practice, but I don't really do reflecting practice very much. And you hear the monks talk quite a bit about it, like Ajahn Amaro or Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, different people. And, you know, maybe it's because their whole life is sort of in a contemplative world. But I'm wondering, you know, it seems like it would be a very good thing to take an issue that we're, we all have plenty of, you know, going on, and then maybe take a 15 minutes or something, 10 minutes even, 5 minutes, and just do this exercise with ourselves. You know, just, you know what I mean? Answer, answer the question and then wait a minute and then ask the question to yourself. <laughs> and then, yeah? Yeah, I that, agree. That's kind of what felt really like, wow, you know. Yeah. That was a surprise. Good. What surprised me most was the, to be the listener. Um, I experimented as the, the person saying thank you with my eyes closed. And then just thought I'd open my eyes while the other person answering the questions had their eyes closed. And talk about developing compassion um, for that person. You know, when you can tell when they're not done when they're thinking, um, it, and I don't know, it was, it was really strong, really strong compassion. 
I got more out of it as a listener than as the person answering the questions. Anyone else? Over here. Hi. Um, I, what surprised me that came up was the need to let go of a certain kind of identification with my body. Um, I have a chronic illness, a chronic condition, and never thought I would hear the words come out of my mouth that I needed to both let go of identifying with having it and identifying with having overcome it. So, mm. It's very useful. Thank you. Great. Over here, please. I was just noticing an interesting feeling of not needing to hold on to anything that came up during the exercise that it will somehow work even without trying to remember it. Great. Anyone else? Yeah, actually what was just said reminded me of what was what came up that was new for me was um, the acknowledgement that uh, uh, often what happens is the uh, exercise continues to sort of repeat itself subconsciously or consciously within me. So um, uh, letting go of the desire for something really interesting to spark during this seven minutes, but realizing that something... Uh, will come out of it in the long run, most likely. Hmm. Good. One more over here. Last one. Two mics. I noticed what um, came out, what started coming out, um, was were a lot of these um, unspoken assumptions that I carry around, um, thoughts that are just kind of just beneath the surface that I don't really, you know, normally in the normal course of the day um, question. You know, and so when they came up, it was like, oh, how about that? (laughs) You know, a lot of these diluted thoughts that uh, just kind of sneak around there. Great, thank you. Um, so we're going to uh, take an hour for lunch and um, you know, be very, really conscious of what you share, of what you heard uh, in these sessions. Some people said some very personal things. Uh, so keep the confidentiality of that. Um, but otherwise, you know, uh, you know, feel free to continue, you know, uh, uh, staying focused in renunciation as you um, enjoy your lunch. <laughs> Mm. 
so I'd like I'd like to uh, put in a little plug here because Gil won't do it. So, um, how many of you uh, knew what that uh, what he read this morning came from? Okay, so a lot of you did, but I bet you some of some of you didn't. This is Gil's new book, A Monastery Within. And um, it's available, you know, you can buy it online. It's available digitally or in a nice little paperback. Uh, so um, uh, that's all for the plug. So I'm going <laughs> to... uh, For those of you who didn't hear, it's it's a perfect stocking stuffer. So, um, so Gil's going to talk a little bit about something else. I thought it might be nice for some of you who are interested, uh, if you want to have a little, come up in, up here in a few minutes when I finish talking, to hear a little bit more about IMC's retreat center search, um, because we've been doing it for many years, and uh, looking, and we finally found a property. This is the closest we're getting to maybe buying something. We've submitted an offer.